0: Mark 7:37 the people said this about Jesus they said he has done everything well he has done everything well Matthew presents a large teaching section by Jesus in chapters 5 through 7 of his gospel which has come to be called the sermon on the mount and we took a look at, at that sermon A number of weeks ago. And then in chapters 8 and 9, Matthew recounts a number of miracles by Jesus. And we've been looking at those too. It begins with the healing of a man with leprosy. And then there is the healing of the servant of the Roman centurion. The healing of Peter's mother-in-law. The calming of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. The freeing of the two demon-possessed men in the region of the Gadarenes the forgiving of the sins, and the healing of paralysis of the man in Capernaum, the raising of the synagogue leader's daughter back to life, and the healing of the woman who had suffered from persistent bleeding for 12 years. Today, we are going to look at the final two miracles in this large section of Matthew 8 and 9, We're going to look at the restoration of the eyesight of two blind men and the exorcism of a demon that was preventing a man from speaking. In these stories that we have in Matthew 8 and 9, we see much more than just Jesus' authority and power over biological sickness. We also see His power and authority over nature, His power and authority over the spiritual realm and His power and authority to forgive our sin. We see the power and authority of Jesus over all realms. He is more than a really gifted human. He is more than an angel. He's more than an alien from another planet who possesses superior abilities to our own. He's none of those things. Instead, He's the Lord of the universe. He's the Savior and the King over all. And He has done everything well. Well, let's begin reading in chapter 9, verse 27. It says, As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed Him, calling out, Have mercy on us, Son of David. Jesus is still in the area of Capernaum, which, as you might remember, is His base of operations during His ministry in the Galilean area. And as he's going along, two blind men start calling out to him, have mercy on us, Son of David. This is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that this term, Son of David, is used by anyone when referring to Jesus, and it's significant. Son of David was a title for the Messiah. These two men calling Jesus Son of David is an acknowledgment by them that they believe Jesus is the Messiah. These two men, they may be physically blind, but they have spiritual sight that many of the other people don't have. We cherish our physical eyesight, and for good reason. Let us pray for spiritual sight, too, that enables us to see and recognize these important truths of the Lord. 28, when he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him And he asked them, do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. So these men, they're persistent. They follow Jesus into the house, continuing to pursue him. And Jesus, he presses them about their claim of faith, asking, do you believe that I am able to do this? Now, this question by Jesus, it may not sound like a whole lot of anything to us, since we're kind of accustomed to this idea of Jesus being the Messiah and healing people as we have read through these stories in the Bible. But try to put yourself in that moment with these men. See, nothing is being taken for granted here. Blindness is not something that was curable. Someone being able to restore a person's eyesight would be an astonishing and unprecedented miracle. These men are calling Jesus Son of David, They're calling Him Messiah. Jesus wants to know if these men really understand what they're saying and if they really believe it. Do they really believe that Jesus is Messiah and possesses the power to restore their eyesight? And they respond to Jesus affirming that they do. They call Him Lord in keeping with their confession about who they believe He is. In verse 29... Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. So Jesus, he touches their eyes and he tells them they are healed according to their faith. Meaning that because of or in response to their faith in Jesus as Messiah, they're being healed. Jesus then sternly warns them not to say anything about what he's done. Now, why would Jesus not want them to say anything about this healing? And we've talked about this before, but we'll talk about it again here. Jesus could have easily spent every waking moment of his life here healing people and caring for immediate felt needs. As hard as it might be for some of us to hear this, because we are so deeply rooted in this life, that was not His main purpose for being here. The miracles that Jesus did were certainly intended to relieve human suffering, and He did a lot of that. But they were also for authenticating who He is, the Messiah, the Son of God. His mission was not just to provide humanitarian aid and physical healing. His mission was larger than that. He came to bring salvation to humanity, to provide a solution to our alienation from God and give us hope and eternal life. He came to die as a sacrifice for our sins and to come back to life on the third day, overcoming death for us. He came to establish a new kind of relationship for us with God based on God's grace rather than our performance. In one sense, popularity worked against his mission rather than helping it. The people had their own ideas about what they thought the Messiah should be and should do. And those ideas were not in alignment with God's will and purpose for the Messiah. God knows better than we do what we need our Messiah to be and do for us. It says, but they, the men, cured of blindness, went out and spread the news about Jesus all over the region, about what he had done. Calling Jesus Lord is not the same as treating him as Lord. See, these men, they had called Jesus Lord, didn't they? Believing he's the Messiah, able to heal them, but they don't treat him as their Lord and obey him. There are many in our own day, too, who do the same thing. I mean, we call Jesus Lord. We believe he's the Messiah. We say he's the Lord, but we don't treat him like he's the Lord over us. Do you remember what Jesus said back in Matthew seven twenty one through 23? He's thinking, uh, not exactly, but we could flip back there really quick and see. He said that there would be people who call him Lord, prophesying in His name, driving demons out in His name, performing miracles in His name, but they would not be known by Him. Being known by Jesus is more than just receiving a miracle of healing from Him or doing good deeds in His name. Do we have a relationship with Him? Are we trusting in Him as our Savior and following Him as our Lord? Relationships can be messy sometimes. But there's a commitment to one another in a relationship that carries us through those difficulties. And that's true with our relationship with Jesus. We may stumble and fall. This relationship we have with Him, it can get messy sometimes. But there's a connection that can't be severed. We're bound together with our Lord by the Spirit of God. We're known by Him. And we know Him. If we believe Jesus is the Lord, then we should live like He is the Lord over us. Amen? There's no question that it would be really hard to not say anything to others if you were healed of blindness. I mean, you would be more than excited about something like that. Obedience is not always easy, though. Obedience is only a challenge when what we're being told to do goes against what we want to do. But that's when obedience is important for us to do it. The Lord doesn't give us commands because he's on some kind of control trip. His commands are intended to protect us from avoidable pain and difficulty, to provide us with a good life, to protect us from each other's selfishness, and to draw us into a deeper relationship with Him. The Lord knows things we don't. He sees things we don't. He knows the ultimate end of all things. We don't have to know all the whys for His commands. We need to trust Him and obey Him. 32 says, while they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. So as these two men who, have been, who had been blind and have received their sight are leaving, another man is brought into Jesus who can't talk. And it says that his condition is being caused by demon possession. Now, a quick point of clarification on that. This does not mean that all physical ailments of this kind are caused by demon possession. Nor does it mean that all cases of demon possession manifest themselves in some kind of physical ailment in a person. This is just a situation in this particular person's case. 33. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Take note of the reaction of the crowd when this man is freed from the demon. And he begins to speak. It says they are amazed. They have never seen anything like this before. But not everyone shares their enthusiasm. Look at the next verse, 34. But the Pharisees said, it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. The old troublemakers are at it again. The Pharisees, they accuse Jesus of driving out demons using the power and authority of the prince of demons, Satan. They can't deny the miracle that has happened. So they try to discredit it by saying that the things that Jesus is doing are the works of the devil. They are going to make this same accusation about Jesus again in Matthew 12, 24, when we get there. And at that time, Jesus will respond at length to their accusation, and we'll talk about it more then. But for now, I'll just point out that the accusation by the Pharisees is nonsensical. They're saying, in effect, that Jesus is driving out evil, using the power of evil to accomplish evil. If Jesus was driving demons out using the power and authority of Satan, it would mean that Satan is working against himself. And Jesus will actually elaborate on that very point when we get to the passage in Matthew 12. Consider this, that it's possible to witness a miracle and not believe in Jesus. In fact... It's possible to go even further than that. It's possible to witness a miracle and attribute it to the devil and as an act of evil rather than as a beautiful act of mercy by the Lord of creation. People will say sometimes, you know, if I could just see a real miracle, I would believe. If I had been there and seen it with my own eyes, I would believe. Not necessarily. Enough evidence is around you and me to believe right now, today. The merciful hand of God has been present in all of our lives. The Lord has spoken to your heart. The truth of Jesus has rung in your ears. It's up to you to act in faith, to believe, to take hold of the hand of God stretched out to you. The question is, will you turn away and write off what you have seen and heard as nothing? Will you claim that these things are the work of evil rather than good? Or will you believe in Jesus as the Messiah and receive salvation? Verse 35 Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. This is another summary description of what Jesus is doing, similar to the one that's in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. He's going through all of the towns and villages, teaching about God, proclaiming the good news that the kingdom of God has come, which is himself, and healing all manners of diseases and maladies that people are suffering from. And then 36, it says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So as we've noted before, big crowds of people gather wherever Jesus is, and when Jesus sees these crowds of people, it says he has compassion on them because they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It says he has compassion on the people. This is a... A word of strong emotion. It it means to feel deep sympathy for another. The word literally meant to be moved in the inner parts of your being where it was believed our emotions reside. This is how Jesus feels toward you. He has compassion for you. And you know, there has never been anyone who feels compassion for us on the same level that Jesus does. Because he's both God and human, he's uniquely able to have compassion on us in a deeper way than anyone else ever could. First, he's the creator who made us, which means he knows every detail about how we work. Second, he's human, which means that he has firsthand experience of what it's like to be a human being. Putting these two perspectives together enables him to know and understand us in a way that no one else can. His compassion for us is on another level. When you are at your lowest, most desperate, lonely, frightened, depressed place, feeling like no one gets you, I want to remind you that there is always one who really does get you one who cares for you on a deeper level than you can even get your head around. Jesus Christ has compassion for you. He said the people are harassed. It means to be troubled, distressed, tormented, oppressed. The word literally means to skin or to lacerate or to tear. It's a vivid word that describes the kind of life that we can find ourselves living without Jesus Christ as our shepherd. He said they're helpless. That word means to be without protection or support, dejected, scattered, worn out. It literally means to be thrown down. Again, this is an insightful description, isn't it, of the kind of life that we have without Jesus as our shepherd. Jesus saying the people are like sheep without a shepherd. It's an indictment against the religious leaders of Israel in those days. They were failing to care for the people the way that they were supposed to. The people were harassed and helpless. The literal meaning of those words was they were torn and thrown down, which brings to mind the imagery of wolves attacking the sheep, doesn't it? In another sense, being like sheep without a shepherd, it describes the human condition. The lonely, lost, alienated, empty feeling that is the common human experience. We are all like sheep without a shepherd until we meet and begin to follow the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. In John 10 11, Jesus said this about himself He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life. For the sheep the good shepherd gives his life for the sake of the sheep he will do whatever it takes to care for the sheep to protect them provide for them guide them ensure their well-being jesus is the good shepherd who has laid down his life for us he did for us what no one else would do or could do he died in our place taking upon himself the curse that was ours, the punishment that we deserve, the judgment and wrath that should have fallen on us, the good shepherd laid his life down for us. And 37 says, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So the metaphor, it shifts now from that of shepherd and sheep to harvest field and workers. And Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful. The need is tremendous. Try to imagine looking at these crowds of people through the eyes of Jesus. He can see into every heart. He knows every person and every person's story. And the need represented is beyond measure. It's still that way. The harvest is as plentiful today as it was then. There's plenty to be done. There's more than enough for everyone to do. There's more work than we can all possibly do. Don't need to be stingy with it. Plenty of it to go around. Jesus says, but the workers are few. The number of workers is tiny in comparison to the tremendous harvest. I want to clarify something for us here. Make sure we're getting what he's saying. Jesus is not talking about people in full-time ministry kind of work. He's not talking about pros. He's talking about all of us, no matter our, our, our occupation. Too often the work is left to the professionals when Jesus has called all of us to be involved in what he's doing in the world around us. Every interaction that you and I have with another person is an opportunity to be used by the Lord in that person's life. The work, it's not only telling people about Jesus and trying to get them to receive Jesus as Savior and follow him. That's certainly part of the work, but the work is larger and it's more nuanced than that, isn't it? I mean, being a helping hand and a speaker of encouragement and a listener to a broken heart, they're also things that are part of the work. We want to help people make a connection with Jesus Christ to open their life to Him and to be a dedicated follower of Him. And how that's done, it's not always the same. We we want to have a listening ear for the leading of the Lord and an ear that's also listening for the need being expressed by each person that we encounter. John Wesley, he said it this way. says, do all the good you can by all the means you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. Why are the workers so few in number? People are distracted and preoccupied with other things. The shiny baubles of this world and the quick gratifications and the worries of this life, they all draw us away from the call that Jesus has for us to go into his harvest field. People fail to see the value of the work. It's a tragedy that we often don't realize the true value of things until we are faced with the end of our life. We spend our time and energy pursuing material wealth and notoriety and power, and when we get to the end, we realize that these things hold such little value in comparison to things like family and friends and giving our life energies to the good of others. I mean, what's, what, what is going to matter most to you when you are old and you're looking back over your life? Will it be the amount of money that you have in your bank account, the size of your house, the number of cars parked in your driveway, the trophies on your mantle, or will it be the people whose lives you have played a part in helping, the people you have invested in, the family and friends and neighbors who love you and value your influence in their life? We all know what the answer is. And what influence can we have on another person that has more value for them than helping them come into a relationship with Jesus Christ? That will impact their life not only now but forever. It takes faith to believe the harvest will come. You see, this kind of work, this Jesus work, in people's lives, it often has a delayed reward. Like the farmer who goes out and he plows the field and plants the seed and he waters the ground day after day again and again. He has to invest a tremendous amount of work before he sees any reward for his effort. He has to trust in the Lord that the Lord will bring the harvest at the proper time. And In a similar way, we give ourselves to others again and again, sharing the good word of the Lord with them, being there to encourage them, continuing to pray for them, continuing to live a life worthy to be imitated by others, continuing to be faithful in living our life as a committed disciple of Jesus, all the time trusting that the Lord will bring the harvest in His time, both in our life and the life of others. It takes faith to believe that the harvest will come. But it will. We're promised that our work in the Lord is not a wasted effort. It will not always have an immediate apparent result, but the harvest is promised to come. First Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, for example, says, My dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain or empty or meaningless. Galatians 6.9, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we will not give up. Finally, verse 38, Jesus says, Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into His harvest field. We can feel overwhelmed with the amount of need that exists and let that turn into discouragement. But that's not how Jesus responded to the need. And it's not the way that he wants us to respond to the need either. Instead, Jesus tells us to go to the Lord of the harvest, the Father, and ask him to send out workers into his harvest field. I want us to notice whose field this is. It's really important. It's the Lord's field. Send out workers into his harvest field. We're just workers in his field. It's ultimately his responsibility to provide workers for the field, not ours. We're to do our part, but don't take the weight of it all on our own shoulders. It's too much. It's not our weight to carry. We trust in our Father, not in ourself. Dwight Moody, he said, I'm only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. And that which I can do, by the grace of God, I will do. And that's the attitude we need to have, too. Well, after Jesus tells us to pray and ask the Father to send out workers into his harvest field, Jesus does exactly that with his disciples in the next chapter We'll read about Jesus sending out His disciples into the surrounding villages to care for the sheep, to drive out demons and to heal the sick and to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus is still sending His disciples into the harvest field today. So in closing this morning, as we stand at the beginning of a new year, let's Take to heart what Jesus has laid before us today. Let us be some of those workers in the harvest field. Let's have an ear that's listening for the leading of the Spirit and listening for the needs being expressed by each person that we encounter. And then let's follow the Lord's leading and be a conduit for the Lord in that person's life. Let's make it a point to pray for the Lord to send out workers into his harvest field. Let's pray he will stir up the hearts of all of his people, beginning with our own heart, to follow Jesus and to share in his work in this world. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your good words spoken to us today. And Lord Jesus, we ask that you would give us encouragement and courage to step out and to follow your call, to be a worker in the Father's harvest field, that we would respond to that, Lord. What a wonderful thing it is to be part of what you're doing in this world. I ask that you would bless each one here today, Lord. May your grace, your peace, your goodness, your joy fall on each one and fill their life to overflowing. In Jesus' name, amen.